Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, when Bruce asked me to cover for him this morning, and then when I had a look at what he'd been speaking on, and he and I had talked about what he was going to be speaking on over the next few weeks, I found myself continuing to be drawn to a couple of my favorite topics. One is the book of Isaiah, and one is our security in knowing what we believe and why we believe it and all those kinds of things. And I could talk forever about these topics, so I will try to keep an eye on the time so that I'm not leaving you here all afternoon with your lunch getting cold at home. But I do want to think about why I might even want to look at a book like Isaiah. Why should we consider the words that a prophet said hundreds of years before Jesus was even born? Surely now that Jesus has already come, and now that we have this fuller understanding of God's word in light of the New Testament, we don't need to concern ourselves with Old Testament revelation anymore, do we? I mean, after all, we now have a whole book called Revelation, don't we? We can admire the beauty of Isaiah's words. I mean, whole sections have been set to music, perhaps most famously in Handel's Messiah. And we can appreciate how important this book must be to the Jewish people with its emphasis on on their redemption, on the redemption of God's covenant people. But what does it have to do with us here in our time? We even know that this book was valued by Jesus and by his disciples. This book is quoted more than 80 times in the New Testament. So we should know how important it is to study it, and indeed all of the prophets, but how often do we really look beneath the surface and ask why? Now, the first thing I would say is that Paul said to Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture. And why would he have written that if the apostles had intended for us to turn our backs on the Old Testament. Think about the parable that Jesus said about the rich man and the poor man Lazarus. Did not Abraham say, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them? In fact, even more than that, he goes on to say, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And it's a familiar parable, and it's probably been in countless sermons, but let that sink in for a minute. If we don't heed the gospel as presented to us in the Old Testament, and when we hear the phrase Moses and the prophets, we can understand that to include the entire Old Testament, then even the resurrection of Jesus cannot convince us of our need for a Savior. And the book of Isaiah does present the gospel. You might already know this because Jesus himself quotes lots of passages from Isaiah, as do his disciples, but you might not think about how much of the gospel is actually there. We hear of the virgin birth in Isaiah chapter 7, the Emmanuel sent by God to live among us. Then God reveals to Isaiah the sacrifice that Jesus will have to make, most famously in Isaiah chapter 53, for the many sins of the world, and he outlines a whole list of them in lots of chapters and even the sins of his own people, we're also shown exclusive glimpses of what it's going to look like during the reign of Christ on earth when he returns and in the eternity to come. And it's pretty fantastic. If we think of the writer of Hebrews, he wrote in chapter 11, verse 13, 
All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance. And I would suggest he was speaking of people like Isaiah and the other prophets. I've heard it said I was at a conference where the New Zealand evangelist Ray Comfort made the analogy that reading prophecy in the Bible is like seeing a great big mountain range from a distance. And this image resonated with me. My grandparents are from Colorado in the States. My mom was born there and her brothers and everything. And so when we would drive along the very flat western edge of Kansas all the way to Colorado, it starts to rise, and you don't really notice it at first until all of a sudden, a couple hundred miles out, you start seeing in the distance these mountains. And they're just a kind of shapely purple haze at first, but as you get closer and closer, you can see the peaks and see the big peaks, and it stretches as far as you can see. And what I would suggest is that from far away, the peaks seem to kind of blend into one another, and that it's only when we are in the midst of the mountains, when we actually drive up through the front range into the peaks themselves, that we can see that those actually, that we thought were, further, were closer, are in fact further away than we could even have imagined. And that one mountain, that seemed to be the tallest one of all when we were approaching it, is in fact dwarfed by bigger ones that have yet to be seen behind it. And this is what it is like when reading prophecy. For we're presented with the future like a photograph of a mountain range. We see it in two dimensions to start with, but only when we are in the midst of what has been prophesied can we start to tell the peaks and the valleys apart, can we? And this is not a problem, because our God, the God of the Bible, he sees the mountains as if from the air. He sees the entire mountain range from beginning to end all at once. Peter wrote that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. You've probably heard that verse before in all kinds of different contexts. But it doesn't mean that God has no concept of time. I would suggest it means that time doesn't matter to God. He sees the beginning and the end of time and everything in between all at once. So when he gives part of the gospel to Isaiah, it's in a mirror, dimly, as Paul said to the Corinthians because he knew it was going to be revealed fully in Christ in due time. So that's maybe one reason to consider looking at this passage and at Isaiah in general. But I would say the other big one is that Isaiah's main topic is the spiritual state of Judah and Jerusalem. And that we should know how to deal with that as 21st century believers in Jesus Christ in Scotland. We might ask, though, why Jerusalem? And we know so much of the Bible centers on Jerusalem, and a lot of the Bible uses the word and the place Jerusalem to kind of stand in for the whole people of God, the nation of Israel. But again, do we stop and consider why? Because Judah was centered around Jerusalem, not geographically, but that was where everything was going down. And the very design of Jerusalem was directed up to the temple that Solomon had built. Jerusalem was the place where God chose to set his name, his very presence. And even though we know now that God is everywhere and in everything all at the same time, he's able to observe all of us simultaneously. But we still know the city of Jerusalem is the center of the earth in God's sight. 
It was where God had every Israelite, every faithful Israelite, go several times a year to seek forgiveness, to make themselves right with God, to be in His presence. And it was where God knew in advance that His Son would have to lay down His life so that ours might be saved. And it was never just a center for the tribe of Judah either, was it? The faithful Jews throughout all history were welcome there. And not just Jews, but strangers and aliens as well. And in fact, God proclaimed through Isaiah, a verse that we know very well, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And didn't Jesus even quote that when he cleared the temple of the money changers? So we now have direct access to this same God because of the sacrifice of Christ. And we don't need to physically travel to the temple in Jerusalem to be near the Lord, but that is our spiritual home. The curtain was torn in two, and we can now meet with him at all times through the Holy Spirit. Peter preached in Acts that the Most High does not dwell in a house made by human hands, but Jerusalem and Israel are still very much the center of God's plans for the future, as we'll see even in just this short chapter. They are God's holy land and his covenant people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we know through the ministry of Jesus that we, the church, are now the spiritual residence of Jerusalem, even as the nation of Israel still now again resides there physically. So with that in mind, I'd like to go ahead and sing hymn 279, I know not why God's wondrous grace is given. Because I think that captures very well this sense of, we don't know why, do we? We have faith and we trust, but we don't always know all the answers. And hopefully we will see some today. Now I know I would usually, or the preacher would usually read the passage before starting all of that, but I wanted to say that first before we turn to Isaiah chapter 1. And apologies, I didn't actually look up what page it is in the Pew Bibles, but hopefully it'll be easy enough to spot. Thank you. 685. I apologize in advance. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible because, well... <laughs> and besides, I, I enjoy that reaction whenever I say that, so what can I say? But I think it also is a good translation for... I often think of it as a muscular translation of the Bible. There's meat behind it, and hopefully you'll see that. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, Offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged or softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who is full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tinder, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. Amen. I don't really even need to do anything else, do I? I could just keep reading that. Because it says it all, doesn't it? And I'll try to unpack a couple of main points here, but really, I could just read this book all day. I could just sit here and how much time do we got? We could just see how many chapters we can get in. But what I'd like to say is a reminder that Paul gives a hard word to the Corinthian church concerning the history of God's people, concerning the Old Testament. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, 
As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So with that in mind, the first point I'd like to make is again that it matters to us that Isaiah ministered to Judah and Jerusalem. Because ever since the kingdom under David and Solomon, there were two Israels, weren't there? If we all remember our Sunday school classes. There was the northern ten tribes who always seemed to go from bad to worse under kings and leaders who looked more towards their own power and wealth and influence than to actually shepherding the people. And there was the two southernmost tribes who went through periods of great faithfulness and glory to God and also great apostasy in themselves, sometimes one directly after the other. Isaiah prophesied, we are told, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And you might not remember any of those names, but the former two of those, I would say, tried their best, even though they had some spectacular failures. And that led to an absolute monster of a king in Ahaz, just as bad as anything that the northern kingdom produced. Only for Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, to be one of the most upright and faithful kings recorded for us in the Bible. And that was just the lifetime of one man of God. The hard thing to acknowledge here is that all 12 tribes were elected out of every nation on earth to be God's chosen people. His chosen inheritance. And that leads us to, a, to some uncomfortable conclusions. They were all God's people, but here we find that Isaiah is ministering only to Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, because the northern tribes of Israel had already fallen so far from the covenant that the lot of them would be conquered and exiled by Assyrian armies within a generation, leaving only the southern tribes as, the, as a sovereign nation of God's people on earth. Now, the northern tribes always struggled with idolatry, and they, they followed after a seemingly endless stream of really bad guys, wicked kings. But they were still the people of God. And thus, the Lord did promise to preserve a remnant. And by His grace, He has followed through on that promise. There were always Jews of all 12 tribes living in Judah and Jerusalem, even before the exile. And if we are honest... We can all think of churches like the Northern Ten Tribes, can't we? Those who claim the label of God's people and claim the blessings that are due to God's people, but do not hold fast to the truths of the faith and are not willing to stand with faithful saints throughout history. Now, Judah, the southern kingdom, on the other hand, yes, it experienced plenty of wicked rulers, and they went through plenty of spiritual droughts of their own, but there in Jerusalem was housed the dwelling place of the Lord, the temple. And so we can see that as equivalent to the church that remains faithful, the church that always is trying to draw near to the presence of God and to experience His power. So we should want to be included in this passage. We want to be the sons and daughters that Isaiah writes of. 
because God has indeed brought us out from among the unbelievers, and He's raised us up as His own children in love. But even as faithful children, we have still rebelled and turned away. And Jesus said in John chapter 10 that His sheep would hear His voice, but sometimes we see in Isaiah that even though an ox can hear, and even though a donkey can hear, the sheep, the church, sometimes doesn't seem to be listening, does it? So even though we might be like the people in Judah and Jerusalem, dwelling as we are in the presence of our Lord, we still get corrupted, like it says in verse 4. We're still in need of, of the cleansing that God offers, and He freely offers it, and it's just as well, because Isaiah quite rightly asks, what else can go wrong? What else can go wrong with you? It says that we as a church are often too sick and weak to fulfill the plans that God would have for us. We take a beating from the outside world and from fighting within our own ranks, and it can feel like we're constantly battling a lack of resources because there's never enough workers to bring in the harvest. As it says here, we're a mess of metaphorical bruises and spiritual wounds, and God wants us to be healed, but yet we continue in our transgressions. Isaiah even compares us to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that's got a sting. That was the ultimate example of God's wrath to describe our stubborn persistence in sin, even as the salvation of Lot from among that wicked place still demonstrates God's sovereign mercy. But unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the good news here, they were cursed never to rise again. But God tells Isaiah that Zion will be redeemed and that she will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city again. And what a promise. That God sees the beginning to the end of our days. And so he sees exactly what we are. He sees that we continue in our many transgressions. And yet he still always provides a way out. And with that in mind, I couldn't help but think of the words of this hymn. And how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. In not that hymn we sang, but the hymn before, it starts off, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me is given, but the chorus keeps saying, but I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able. And it's almost a shame it's worded like that. Because the second point to consider, and indeed the amazing thing about this chapter of Isaiah, and indeed in Isaiah as a whole, and the Bible as a whole, is that God says, come, and let us reason together about all of this. He's just told us through his prophet that we're a mess, and he's fed up of our attempts to convince him that we are not. But here is the Lord offering to sit and reason with us. And I, the reason I bring this up is it's a remarkable statement for our day and age that faith in the God of the Bible and in Christ as God's ultimate salvation is reasonable. And it is reasonable because God has proved his faithfulness down through the generations. What is the song that the kids often sing? That all through history, God is faithful. He's fulfilled the promises he's spoken in his word regarding his people Israel. So our faith is not blind or mad. It is firmly established in God's purposes for his people. Purposes he declared through his word and by his word. 
consider this. I mean, just consider it. That God promised, even just in this chapter, twice in verses 9 and 27, to preserve a remnant of his people. And he's kept that promise for thousands of years. He preserved them in Egypt and throughout the Exodus. He saved them countless times during the days of the judges and of the kings. He brought them back from their captivity in Babylon and reestablished them in their homeland. And he's continued to do so today by regathering his people once again. And if God has such concern for his people Israel, and if, as the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, we have been grafted in us wild olive branches, you probably never thought yourself as a wild branch, did you? We have been grafted in by the sacrifice of Christ and become children of God by adoption into his people, we have confidence in our security. We can see throughout history and throughout the pages of God's word how the Lord preserves his own. So there is no cause to doubt the promises God has made. And I say all this because many in our world today would have us believe that faith is just a primitive set of superstitions designed to comfort ourselves when life gets too hard or we can't understand the world around us. We don't, we don't get what is happening. We're told today that we're hurting ourselves, that we're hurting our families, our children, and our communities by clinging to outdated beliefs, beliefs that keep us from participating in this open, inclusive, and non-judgmental society of the 21st century. As an example, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but the world would tell us there has to be a natural explanation for everything. We acknowledge that God, as the Lord of our lives, he has the ultimate authority to tell us what to do or what not to do. But our whole society is based around fulfilling our own desires above everything else, isn't it? We desire to spread the good news of Christ and to free people from their bondage to sin. But the cardinal sin in our world today is telling anyone that what they're doing is wrong, that there are eternal consequences for their actions, that there is only one way, one truth, and one life as Jesus said in John chapter 14. So what are we to make of it then when the Lord encourages us to reason together with him? He calls out that if we can turn away from our sin, he will restore us. But by the standards of our day and age, that doesn't sound very reasonable. But do not lose heart. Aha. Because Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, so that no man may boast before God. What did that song just say? That I will not boast in anything save the cross of Christ. So we don't have to worry whether our faith seems reasonable to others. You don't. It is only with the existence of an eternal unchanging, all-knowing, and all-powerful God that anything is ultimately reasonable to anyone. And it is only the God of the Bible who fits that description. So despite what the world would have us believe, without the God of the Bible, nothing in the end actually makes any sense. And I'm happy to talk to anyone about this for hours at length, but I won't because I'm conscious of the time. <laughs> Because even so, and I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, well, that's all well and good, 
But the people who live and work around us, they don't think that our faith makes sense. Why would sane, reasonable people believe in a virgin birth, believe in people coming back from the dead, believe in talking snakes and the sea parting before a man with a stick? How can we have faith, certain faith, in what we can't see, as in Hebrews chapter 11, especially when so much of the world thinks we are wrong? Well, what I think would probably surprise many people and probably has surprised many of us when we turn to Christ is how much everything in the world and everything in our lives starts to make sense in the light of the gospel and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Romans, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And 2 Corinthians says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Think about that. Those in the world around us are not even able to understand our faith without help. And that help can only come from the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite books in the Bible, other than Isaiah, is the letter to the Colossians. And there Paul writes, the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, is found in Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are given this truth, it says, so that no one will delude us with persuasive argument, or take us captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. In other words, when we turn to Christ and look to him as our source of wisdom and knowledge, we're freed from this vicious cycle of man-made ideas, ideas which have convinced us that selfishness and greed can be good, ideas that have convinced us that the planet is more important than the people who live in it, and that there is no God in heaven who will ultimately stand in front of us as our Lord and judge. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. I want you to think carefully on that on your way home, because this is not saying that we check our brains at the door when we come to church, or that we just thumb our noses at the rest of the world for not sharing our faith. It says that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ challenges everything we think we know about how to live our lives. The Scottish philosopher David Hume famously realized after all of his learning, just as Solomon did in the book of Ecclesiastes more than 2,000 years earlier, that all is vanity. That we cannot even be sure of the evidence of our eyes and our ears and our mouths and our fingers if all we have to rely on is the bit between our ears. With the wisdom and knowledge that come from God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, by way of the Holy Spirit, however, 
we can be sure not only of our place in this world and in this life, but also in the new world and eternal life to come. And I would suggest that God also says to come and reason with him because we need to be reasoned with. Isaiah goes on to say later in this same book that we all like sheep have gone astray and all of us have become like one who is unclean. And let us remember, Isaiah speaks not to unbelievers when he says that, but to the people of God, of Judah and Jerusalem, the church. We have gone astray. So is it any wonder that those with no faith in God have done likewise? Bruce has been reading the letters to the churches in Revelation. What's the one it ends with? With Laodicea, the lukewarm that will be spat out. But God does not judge us for our sin without providing a way in which we might be saved. For why should he say that our sins are as scarlet if he did not already know, as the writer of Hebrews said, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus told us that his blood would form the promise of the new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to confirm that, that Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Just to give a few examples... Just in the same way, Moses sprinkled the blood of the first covenant over the people as they heard the words of the law to seal them to the Lord. That was the sign of the covenant. At the first Passover, scarlet blood from the perfect lambs marked the doorposts of God's faithful people to save them from destruction. Likewise, Rahab, by faith, trusted in the scarlet thread displayed in her window to bring her mercy as Joshua's army served God's judgment on Jericho. The law of Moses specified that for the purification of the people, before they could approach God's presence in the tabernacle courts and at the altar, so basically the equivalent of me standing at the door as you all come in, they had to be sprinkled with a bunch of hyssop, tied together like a paintbrush with a piece of scarlet thread. And we need to be purified. We need that purification. Because the word translated as scarlet here, when we read it in Hebrew, it radically means double dyed, so the deep fixed permanency of sin in the heart, not just the odd little white lie or impure thought. We therefore have to be doubly cleansed. We have to be purified more than we ever could be by our own devices, for it is impossible, again from Hebrews, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All the sacrifices, the washings, and the ordinances and the law of Moses point us to the sacrifice of Christ. But how much more, we are told, will the blood of Christ cleanse our hearts than the temple sacrifices, which could only ever cleanse us symbolically at best? We also think of what Samuel said to Saul in the book in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Now those words were spoken to Saul when he tried to excuse his disobedience by offering up sacrifices to God. The problem for Saul was, and the problem for us still is, that God is not impressed by sacrifices that he didn't ask for. 
He's not impressed by sacrifices that are offered with wrong motives. He wants us to come to him with repentant hearts, with an attitude of reverence and humility, and only then will he accept the offerings we make in faith. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He told them that that widow who put in those two little coins in the temple offering had contributed more than any of the more wealthy donors because she offered with right motives. I think the hardest part in this passage to hear is that, especially for those of us who love the Lord, is that God doesn't even want to listen to our prayers until we repent. We're told in Isaiah that our church services, our offerings, our worship are repugnant to him. They're gross. That all our righteousness is as filthy rags, he says later, until we have learned to do good by taking on his righteousness in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts, God asks. And we might try to say that we're only following what God has asked by showing up on a Sunday morning. But it is merely trampling his courts without any value as worship or service to our Lord unless we come with repentant hearts. The revelation of Isaiah, however, is that we can be made clean. We can be washed in the blood of the Lamb and given the white robes of the saints to wear. And unless we think the task of living up to his standards is too difficult, God gives us small practical things to do. Turn away from our sins. Fight against injustice. Take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. The orphan, the widow, both among God's people and in the world. God even says that this has been determined in advance by his wisdom. He says he will smelt away our dross, and he will remove all our alloy, and he will restore us. I don't know if any of you have ever seen metal being smelted or dross being burned away, so it's probably not going to be comfortable, but it will be done. He will judge those who fall short, yes, as we see at the end of the chapter, but he still says that Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. So if we look back over this vision of Isaiah, just to draw this to a close, we can see that God's grace and mercy is reasonable. God loves his people as his children, verse 2. But we honor the Lord less than an animal would its master, verses 3 and 4. We have borne the consequences of our disobedience and our rebellion in our lives, verses 6 through 8. And it's only by God's grace that he has not wiped us off the face of the earth, in verse 9. To those who might argue with Isaiah and say that all we need is knowledge of God's word and his sacraments because we are his people, we are the church. Isaiah reminds us that God desires obedience of the heart rather than observance of rituals and ceremonies, verses 10 to 15. God's words lay our hypocrisy before our eyes, and yet we find in verses 16 and 17 that the remedy is so simple, yet so difficult to master, isn't it? He tells us in verse 18 that we will be made clean, a thing which is certain to come to pass, because our Lord is a God who keeps his promises, 
as he illustrates in verses 19 and 20. It's all laid out. To those who might claim that we can save ourselves through our good works, undermining the message of salvation by grace through faith, Isaiah reminds us that even among God's people, in verses 21 to 23, we are all still sinners. And it is only God who can refine and purify the faithful remnant, verses 24 to 27. And only he who can punish the wicked and the idolaters, 28 to 31. It all makes sense. It's very reasonable, isn't it? This is the gospel, that we should know forgiveness of sins through the grace of God the Father, the sacrifices of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the ministrations of the Holy Spirit, who leads us into all truth. The gospel of the New Testament is thus predicted by Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ's birth. And in the light of that gospel, we see new truths even in the Old Testament. And with that in our minds, let us come and sing from Mission Praise 975, before the throne of God above, that we do indeed have a great high priest arguing at the throne of God before him. Again, the book of Hebrews, another one of my favorite books of the Bible. Whoever lives and pleads for me. And Lord God, as we ponder all that you have for us in your word, we know that your word is true from beginning to end. And we pray that we would be mindful of every bit of it, Lord. We know that you have called us to be your people, and you have brought us to yourself and bound us to your son like, like vines grafted onto the true stem, the true root. And we pray that as we leave this place, Lord God, that we would feel ourselves growing deeper in knowledge of you, even as the roots of a vine grow deeper and deeper and produce better and better fruit. And Father God, as we fellowship with one another today, pray that we would be encouraged by your spirit, that we would know that we do not have a faithless hope or a hopeless faith, but that we have a sure and certain hope for the future, one that you have already determined. In the name of God and your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.